Today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Mojda Kievner, one of our new medical ICU pharmacists who uh, got her degree initially um, here at University of Maryland and uh, did subsequent work and, and further training in critical care pharmacy up at Yale and New Haven, um, where she won the Pharmacist of the Year, actually, in the state of Connecticut a couple years ago, I guess. And um, it's been an absolute pleasure having her here in the MICU. She's done a wonderful job to date and a pleasure to have her around. So welcome and thank you for uh, talking to our group today. Thank you, guys. Make sure it's on. You can hear me okay? All right. So a rather big topic that we'll try to go over today um, and try to keep interesting for you guys as well. Um, but really uh, something that I think is uh, very important when we're managing patients in the ICU, um, the pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic changes that we expect and anticipate in our patients. Okay, um, so what I hope to go over today is to really give you an appreciation for the physiologic changes that happen in critical illness um, and how those may affect the pharmacodynamics and pharmacokinetics of our patients, which I'll refer to as PKPD for simplicity throughout this talk. Um, and also understand some of the interventions that we make for organ support for our patients um, and various other interventions that we make and how those impact PKPD as well. And we'll walk through a uh, hypothetical patient case for drug X in a patient who's receiving CRT and kind of talk through that thought process. <clears throat> I have no financial disclosures relevant to this talk, but I do have to disclose that as a clinical pharmacist in the ICU, I am rather obsessed with pharmacotherapy and um, really think about all the time um, how I can maximize effectiveness avoid toxicity, and potentially minimize unintended side effects if possible. And in order to achieve those three goals, we of course have to optimize our pharmacodynamics and pharmacokinetics. Um, and so that is what I'm going to try to um, instill in you is just understanding the individual changes that can happen in your patient and try to think about how you may expect certain changes in the effects of your drugs. Uh, I know you know these terminologies, but of course I can't help but review them um, since they're the foundation for this talk. Pharmacokinetics is the processes by which the, um, conducted on, by the body on the drug. Um, pharmacodynamics describes the pharmacologic response of the um, drug at the site of action or the receptor level and ties in very closely with pharmacokinetics, of course. And uh, I won't, um, while pharmacogenomics is outside the scope of this talk today, it is important to understand how closely that ties in as well with pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics. Um, and that relates to the patient-specific differences in PKPD that you would expect based on genetic polymorphisms and, and is really the future of PKPD. So I'll spend the first half of this talk talking about um, a, the basic four uh, principles in pharmacokinetics, which are absorption, distribution, metabolism, and elimination. So absorption is, of course, both the rate and the extent by which a medication leaves the site of administration and goes into the circulatory system. And so the rate, specifically, is the time to the peak concentration, or the Tmax. And that's impacted by size, solubility, lipophilicity, ionization, and the dissociation rate constant of the drug. Uh, the extent is best represented by the area under the curve, or the AUC, um, and also uh, uh, refers to the bioavailability, which is the fraction of the drug that's administered that reaches systemic circulation. 
And so by definition, for a drug that's given intravenously, of course, you would expect 100% bioavailability. Whereas, you know, if you're giving a medication through another route, subcutaneous, transdermal, inhaled, enterally, you expect different bioavailability based on the site of administration, and then, of course, the inherent differences in the drug as well. Uh, aside from the intravenous route, which we use quite frequently in the ICU, we do give a lot of medications through the GI tract, so it is important to understand um, how, how absorption through that site happens. Um, so absorption through the stomach is generally slow uh, and it favors more acidic drugs, whereas absorption through the small intestine is generally fast and favors more basic drugs. And keep in mind that the vast majority of drugs that we give our patients are absorbed through the small intestine. So there's a lot to think about in terms of the physiologic changes that can happen in critically ill patients that may change the absorption extent and rate um, through the GI tract. So very simply, shunting of blood from the periphery. We know that you know, patients who are in shock are going to have shunting of blood away from um, the GI tract potentially to the vital organs like the heart, brain, kidneys, um, which potentially could decrease the uptake of drug from the GI tract, for example. <clears throat> and then vasopressors, this is a little bit controversial because there is some conflicting data, but of course, you know, starting a patient on an epinephrine drip, it's been thought that potentially that could cause uh, splenic vasoconstriction that will decrease perfusion to the GI tract, um, shunting blood to more of the vital organs. Um, and then decrease absorption of the drug through the GI tract. We also, not only the inherent physiologic changes that happen to patients who, are, who have trauma, who have sepsis, but also medications, opiates that we give patients are gonna potentially delay gastric emptying and decrease motility through the GI tract. That becomes more of an issue when you're uh, dealing with uh, drugs that are absorbed in the small intestine because that's going to decrease the um, or increase the time it takes to get to the small intestine and actually increase the Tmax. And then of course a lot of our patients are getting enteral tube feeds. So the, the feeding tube itself has some interactions with the medications that we give. Um, the meds can adhere to the tube, which is why we generally try to flush with um, water before and after giving medications. But also the enteral tube feeds themselves will, as you guys know, interact with medications as well, directly binding to them, decreasing bioavailability. Um, but also the enteral nutrition, really any feeding actually that we're giving our patients, is gonna increase the pH of the stomach and decrease potentially drugs, uh, bioavailability that are absorbed in the stomach. So I think I've maybe sufficiently scared you guys into not wanting to give any medications enterally anymore based on those physiologic changes that we talked about. Um, but I'm going to present a kind of a counterexample. And you'll see that a lot of the literature that we'll talk about, it's really conflicting data. Um, so it's really hard to say definitively what um, changes we're expecting in critical illness. Um, but with Oseltamivir, as you guys know, a couple of years ago, there was the outbreak with H1N1, um, and the World Health Organization made a recommendation to give higher doses of Tamiflu, uh, 150 milligrams BID instead of the normal 75 BID um, for patients who had severe H1N1. And this was not based on any data, but rather for concern that there could be decreased GI absorption as a result of the critical illness 
Um, and so trying to overcome that and achieve the bioavailability or achieve the systemic levels that we need to treat the severe infection. So uh, this Canadian group did a study to actually validate whether that's really true and whether we really need to give those higher doses. This was a multi-center prospective observational study in 41 ICU patients who had suspected or confirmed H1N1. And while most of the patients did receive 75 BID, um, there were some patients that received 150 of Tamiflu BID um, based on physician discretion, although they did take that into account in their modeling for the pharmacokinetics. And what they found was that the area under the curve, bioavailability, um, drug exposure, of Tamiflu, uh, the active metabolite, for these study patients who were critically ill was actually very similar to patients in the ambulatory setting. So kind of an unexpected result um, that perhaps suggests that we don't need to give higher doses to these patients. Uh, so talking about subcutaneous absorption now, um, as you know, trauma patients are at very high risk for developing VTE, um, and so the standard of care is to put those patients on low molecular weight heparins for prophylaxis of DVT and PE. Well, uh, studies that looked at asymptomatic PE development in severely injured trauma patients actually found no protective benefit. So they saw that pharmacologic prophylaxis, mechanical prophylaxis, or no prophylaxis did not make a difference in these patients. Um, and it makes you think, you know, uh, perhaps there is some altered pharmacokinetics in this patient population where the low molecular weight heparin given subcutaneously is not achieving the therapeutic plasma anti-10A levels that we would like to achieve. The dosing of 30Q12, which is what we, standard, what we give as a standard, is really extrapolated from general surgery patients and orthopedic surgery patients, and so not really derived from these critically ill patients. Um, and there were some studies that looked at overall critically ill patients and found that anti-10A levels were variable and were potentially subtherapeutic in overall critically ill patients. Um, this group in uh, uh, upstate New York was interested in specifically looking at multi-trauma patients and then also evaluating the effect of peripheral edema on the absorption. And so they designed a single center's prospective observational study where they looked at 25 patients who had multi-trauma and had peripheral edema or did not have peripheral edema and compared anti-10A levels in those two patient populations. And what they found is that this is not a one-size-fits-all model, not even in our multi-trauma population. Um, so you can see that the plasma anti-10A uh, AUC for the patients who are in cohort a, which is um, the black dots, the top line, um, is much higher than the cohort B, which are the patients um, or with the dots that are white in the lower line. Um, and so there was a significant difference in the AUCs in, in anti-10A exposure between these patient groups. Um, so what does that mean clinically? Well, we're not entirely sure what anti-10A levels we need to shoot for for prophylaxis. Um, in order to prevent development of DVT, but there's at least one study that shows that patients who have an anti-10A level uh, less than or equal to 0.1 have more than double the risk of developing a DVT. So um, as you can see here, patients in cohort B with the white dots um, spend quite a bit of time below that threshold. 
and so they're at risk for developing DVT. So not only is it just critical illness, but specifically the presence of edema that increases this risk for these patients. All right, let's shift gears to distribution. And so that's most represented by the volume of distribution, which is the relationship between the dose and the serum concentration. And there are a number of uh, factors, both in patients and critical illness, as well as the drug factors that affect the volume of distribution. So uh, in general, we say that lipophilicity will increase tissue distribution um, and regional hypo tissue hypoperfusion. So um, the shunting of blood that we talked about is going to potentially decrease drug delivery to um, the peripheral tissues and decrease volume of distribution. Fluid resuscitation for uh, most, most likely for hydrophilic drugs that are gonna follow where that fluid goes. Um, it's gonna increase the volume of distribution. And then of course we have a lot of patients, especially our septic patients who develop capillary leak and third spacing of total body water. So those hydrophilic drugs that follow water are going to third space. We're gonna end up with a functional increase in our volume of distribution. And plasma protein binding, uh, and I wanna make sure that we uh, are very clear about this because this affects so many things other than even just distribution. Um, but uh, so we have two plasma proteins primarily, um, albumin, which, is, which typically binds to acidic drugs and tends to be, uh, levels tend to be decreased in critical illness. And then we have alpha-1 acid glycoprotein, or AAG, which tends to bind to basic drugs and levels tend to increase in critical illness. So complicated because it depends on you know, the drug and which protein it's binding to, as well as um, what you're, what, in order to determine essentially what change you're expecting. So giving you an example that we commonly use, phenytoin. Um, so that is a, it's, a, it's an acidic drug that binds to albumin. And so with albumin levels being decreased in critical illness, we expect that we will have increased phenyt free phenytoin levels in critically ill patients. And what does that mean for distribution? So that means that you're gonna have more drug available to actually distribute into tissue and thus an increased volume of distribution. Um, one of the most important things when we talk about distribution, of course, is uh, is your drug getting to the site of action, very basically. So for something like, for example, tigacycline, it doesn't concentrate well in the urine. We're never gonna use it for a urinary tract infection. But what about the drugs where we actually, we think they're distributing well into the site of action, but what if our pharmacokinetics are changed in critical illness? Um, are we really achieving those levels that we expect? So uh, gentamicin, um, we do occasionally use for uh, uh, gram-negative, um, more resistant pneumonias. And therapeutically, we would want to achieve a, um, a serum level um, with a peak that is rather high um, in order to achieve maximal bactericidal killing. Um, but ultimately, we want distribution into the lung, and specifically, we want it into the alveolar lining fluid, or ALF, in patients who have pneumonia, and that's what we're trying to treat. So uh, this study was a single-center prospective observational study that looked at 24 patients who received a standard dose of gentamicin, 240 milligrams, over 30 minutes. And they wanted to look at the pharmacokinetics and look at um, serum levels of gentamicin and see how that correlates to levels in the ALF. 
Um, and they said, you know, we want to achieve a clinical response in at least 90% of our patients. And so, of course, based on the mechanism of killing of gentamicin, we are going to target maximum concentrations or Cmaxes, peaks in the serum to uh, minimum inhibitory concentrations or MICs of at least 8 to 1 or 10 to 1. Now that's in the serum and that's what we typically target. Um, but we again don't know what levels we're achieving in the lung and we're going to want to achieve those high or pretty high peaks um, in the lung tissue as well. And so this is what they actually found. Um, as you can see, um, the top line is the, um, the plot of the serum levels. And you get this nice peak with gentamicin. You get the four, about 14 micrograms per ml, which is exactly what you want. Um, however, if you look down, really far down, at the ALF levels, um, that, your peak ALF gentamicin levels only about 30% of what your peak serum level is. Um, so probably we are not achieving our pharmacodynamic targets here with the way that we're dosing the gentamicin for patients with pneumonia. There's no way we would be able to achieve a peak that we need um, in that tissue for a more resistant gram-negative organism. Um, that being said, there were some issues with this study. The dose they used was a standard one-size-fits-all. Um, as you guys know, we do a weight-based dosing. We prefer high-dose extended interval in order to maximize these pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics. Um, so we would probably end up with like more like a 400 or 500 milligram dose for a patient. Um, however, there are issues with that. Of course, we can't use high-dose extended interval in a patient who has horrible renal function um, was AKI. Um, so in that type of patient, we would never be able to achieve our pharmacodynamic targets. So uh, distribution is important not just for our antibiotics, but for how it affects um, analgesics and sedation that we use in the ICU as well. Um, this study, the brain ICU study, looked at long-term cognitive function of ICU survivors. And as part of this study, um, done at Vanderbilt, they also looked at um, all patients who received fentanyl within the first five days of their ICU admission in the medical or surgical ICU. They ended up enrolling over 500 patients, and they looked to see what are the factors that affect pharmacokinetics of fentanyl in these patients. And they identified three main factors. The first of which was um, by far the most significant was weight. And that um, was patients' weight in the 10th or in the 90th percentile, so in either extreme. And they saw that patients who were in the 10th percentile for weight, after receiving a fentanyl continuous infusion for at least 24 hours, their levels were 50% higher than the patients who were in the 90th percentile. <clears throat> so what does that mean? Um, that means that fentanyl is a very lipophilic drug. It preferentially distributes into adipose tissue. So as expected for um, obese patients, um, you're going to need a higher dose to achieve the same effect as you would for a patient who's underweight. It's important to know that when we're starting dosing, but it's also important to remember that you're also going to develop kind of a depot effect where the fentanyl is going to deposit into the adipose tissue. That patient who's required really high doses all along, once the fentanyl infusion is stopped, um, you're going to expect a little bit of a lingering effect from the drug because you're going to get redistribution of fentanyl back into the serum. Now, the other two factors that they identified that were important for fentanyl PK um, actually relate to metabolism. So we will talk about metabolism now. Um, primary sites of metabolism, um, really, really the liver uh, would be your predominant site, although 
you can have metabolism occurring in the GI tract, in the kidneys, the lungs, the brain. Um, and then, of course, factors that affect metabolism and critical illness. Um, again, the serum protein concentrations. You are going to metabolize drug that's free. So remember we said that there are different effects on albumin and AAG levels and differing effects on the drug-free levels based on um, those changes. And so you're going to, if, if you have more free drug, you're going to get faster metabolism of that drug. And then we also have to think about hepatic enzyme activity, primarily two phases of metabolism. There's phase one um, and phase two. Phase one tends to be a little bit more sensitive to um, in patients who have cirrhosis or end-stage liver disease. Um, or even elderly patients are gonna have less functioning, whereas phase two metabolism tends to be more reserved, even in those patient populations. And then of course your metabolism is affected by hepatic blood flow as well, um, which is denoted by Q. And there are um, certain drugs that are more affected by that, um, specifically high extraction ratio drugs are more affected by blood flow states. And we'll talk about the difference between the low and high hepatic extraction ratio drugs. So um, taking it back a step, step um, hepatic clearance is dependent on a function of blood flow through the liver, Q, and hepatic extraction ratio. The hepatic extraction ratio is dependent on uh, the fraction of unbound drug, so really dependent on your protein levels, um, as well as the intrinsic hepatic metabolism by those phase one, phase two metabolism pathways. Hopefully I haven't confused you too much at this point, but low extraction drugs are going to, and I've given some examples here, they are very sensitive to both the fraction of unbound drug as well as the intrinsic uh, hepatic clearance via the phase one and phase two metabolism. Uh, however, high extraction drugs, um, really the most important thing, um, the most important factor for metabolism of those drugs through the liver is the blood flow. Um, and so you can see fentanyl is on that list of high extraction drugs. Going back to the brain ICU study, um, the two factors relating to metabolism that were identified in that study were history of severe liver disease and history of congestive heart failure. And that makes sense now when we remember that fentanyl is a high extraction ratio drug um, because it's gonna be very dependent on blood flow through the liver. So in both of those states, end stage liver disease, um, as well as heart failure, you're gonna have decreased flow through the liver. All right, elimination um, can occur through the biliary tract, the feces, and the respiratory tract, but of course the predominant site is the kidney. And it's thought that elimination is, or renal clearance of medications is proportional to the glomerular filtration rate, although tubular secretion and reabsorption likely can contribute, and in patients with acute kidney injury, there's likely a, an overcompensation of non-renal clearance of some medications as well that needs to be factored in. The two big things um, relating to elimination that occur in critical illness that we need to think about are acute kidney injury, of course, which we see pretty prevalently in the ICU, and something we think about a little bit less, augmented renal clearance. So let's start with acute kidney injury. Um, so the Cadico Society guidelines 
provide great recommendations for dosing of medications in chronic kidney disease, um, which is primarily based on simply the FDA-approved labeling of medications in that in um, diminished renal function. However, for acute kidney injury, um, there's really not a lot of literature out there. And so the Cadigo guidelines acknowledge that, but they do make a recommendation that for hydrophilic medications, that we should administer loading doses um, that are 25 to 50% greater than normal. And this is because of um, increased volume of distribution in those patients and that we should provide normal or near normal maintenance doses. Um, they don't provide a lot of details on what drugs specifically that refers to and what that dosing should be. So it leaves us with our clinical judgment really in order to figure out how to dose these things. So um, these are some practical recommendations for how to dose medications in uh, AKI. Um, in general, of course, monitoring the serum creatinine trends and urine output trends. Um, considering doing a urine creatinine collection to really get a better sense, a more accurate sense of what the patient's renal function is doing at that moment. Um, and then in general, erring on the side of being more aggressive, um, not quite as aggressive as the Cadigo guidelines recommend, but especially with antibiotics, we definitely don't want to be underdosing our patients. Um, in general, I say normal loading doses, um, not necessarily the higher loading doses that Cadigo recommends, um, but you know, fluconazole for canadenia, I would still do 800 milligrams. People sometimes look at me cross or uh, sideways when I say that, but um, it, they do potentially have an increased volume of distribution. And then um, whenever you're kind of on the fence of a dosing interval, um, in general with AKI, trying to round up, because especially with antibiotics and especially with, um, with beta-lactams, for example, um, you want to err on the side of, uh, of giving a higher dose if you're not sure. Um, and then, of course, therapeutic drug monitoring whenever possible, um, especially for narrow therapeutic index medications like aminoglycosides and vancomycin, um, where you can really use those levels to kind of guide your dosing. All right, so shifting gears away from acute kidney injury to now supraphysiologic renal function. Um, and this is actually something that keeps me up at night. Anybody else? No? Okay. Maybe you. <laughs> um, so this is thought to be due to increased glomerular filtration um, with a potential role for tubular secretion and reabsorption changes as well. And it's thought that it's due to a natural response to the body to critical illness in patients who have greater underlying physiologic reserve. And we see this with other things too. There's no standard definition for this, although some of the studies that have been done have uh, used a threshold of creatinine clearance above 120 or 150. <clears throat> and you can't actually use the creatinine to make a diagnosis of this to um, identify a patient with ARC. You actually have to do a urine creatinine collection for diagnosis. We think that the prevalence is anywhere from 30 to 65% in the general ICU population, although there are certain ICU patients that are at greater risk for it, and we'll talk about that momentarily. Um, and we also think that uh, the incidence of ARC will peak between days four and five and probably normalize by day seven. So there are, of course, ICU factors that go into the risk for developing ARC. Um, any state that causes increased cardiac output, early phase sepsis, for example, um, anything that will cause increased blood flow to major organs, um, and then fluid resuscitation, anything that will increase preload, ultimately those things will increase perfusion to the kidneys and potentially increase 
your GFR. So as I said, the overall risk of developing ARC is between 30 to 65%. However, there um, have been indications to show that patients with early phase sepsis, major trauma, TBI, and CNS infections are at greatest risk, so up to 85% incidence in those patients. Um, although patients with VAC, burns, uh, major surgery, hematologic malignancy, and pregnancy are also at great risk for developing ARC. So this group came up with a tool to kind of determine um, the risk that a patient may have for developing ARC at some point. Um, and so they took into consideration, um, they gave six points for age less than or equal to 50, three points for a trauma admission, and one point for a modified SOFA score less than or equal to four. And they predicted that this would correlate well with, um, based on the likelihood for having ARC and be able to identify those patients. So they actually found um, that scores, uh, cumulative scores of between seven and 10 carried a very high risk for having ARC. Actually 82% of those patients with those scores had um, ARC as measured by the urinary creatinine clear, uh, clearance. Um, and that risk dramatically dropped off with lower scores less than six. Um, and they also had, this was 100% sensitivity and 71 specificity for this test. All right, so you're probably wondering, why does this keep her up at night? <laughs> um, why can it be bad that our patients have excellent renal function? Um, well, they're, you know, we're running the risk of potentially uh, significantly underdosing our patients. Um, and adoxaban is a great example of this. So there's actually a black box warning in patients with a creatinine clearance above 95. Um, and that is related to decreased efficacy with the drug and a risk, of course, for ischemic stroke with this anti-10A inhibitor um, if you're underdosing your patient. So my question is, um, you know, we know this information with adoxaban because it's a relatively new drug. This has actually been studied, but we really haven't studied superphysiologic renal function and dosing for medications in a lot of the medications that we use. So what other medications are we potentially underdosing in patients with ARC? Uh, general recommendations for ICU patients who may be at high risk for having ARC or where you suspect it. Um, it can't, you know, uh, risk benefit um, kind of going towards the higher dosing if you're on the fence um, or using alternate medication dosing regimens like um, extended infusion beta lactams, for example. Um, and then getting that baseline uh, urine collection um, and calculating the actual creatinine clearance if you are concerned about ARC. And then, of course, because this tends to resolve around day seven, repeating that urine collection around ICU day seven to um, assess for resolution of it. All right, so um, we just finished talking about superphysiologic organ function, but um, a lot of our patients have multi-organ failure, of course, and we make a lot of interventions to try to support them. Um, we also do other interventions like plasmapheresis and targeted temperature management. All of these things will affect the PKPD of the drugs that we give our patients. So um, you'll find that there's really not a lot of literature and a lot, not a lot of guidance other than a lot of case reports perhaps um, for these modalities and how they affect PKPD. Um, but it is important to understand the general principles um, and think about actually where we can contribute to the literature when we have, actually, when we have patients who are on these modalities. <coughs> All right, so um, 
as you know, we have a lot of patients who have AKI requiring uh, dialysis. We also have a lot of patients who are on chronic dialysis who cannot sustain intermittent hemodialysis because of their hemodynamic compromise. So we end up with a lot of patients who are on CRT. So how does this affect our drugs? Well, we know that dialysis in general will take off um, drugs that are, have low protein binding, um, that have low volume of distribution, that are centralized more in the plasma. So um, we would think that CRT would have more predictable clearance compared to intermittent hemodialysis because it's a continued um, process and should be um, a little bit more predictable, it should be closer to sort of like normal renal function. Um, but that's definitely not the case because we have a lot of factors in ICU patients. Um, ICU patients with AKI are dynamic. Their renal function could be improving um, during their stay. Uh, their dialysis um, circuit could clot off for a couple hours, which will interrupt the clearance of dr drugs that you would expect. Um, also, the dialysate and ultrafiltrate flow rates are um, frequently changing based on the patient's needs. And actually, the, there's variability in terms of the permeability of different hemodia filters. So more permeable filters are going to take off some more of the kind of middle molecular weight drugs like vancomycin and daptomycin. Um, and then the hemodia filter age, um, so in the package insert for the filter, it actually recommends changing the filter every 48 hours. Um, although I think, you know, it, it sounds like many institutions will extend that window to more like 72 or 96 hours because it really doesn't affect um, sol small solutes being taken off. It has more of an effect on actually the drugs like vancomycin, daptomycin with the larger molecular weights and kind of um, decreased clearance of those drugs. So it may become an issue where you have a patient who's on CRT, you have very predictable vancomycin clearance, you think you're doing really well, and then the dialysis filters changed and all of a sudden clearance is much more efficient than it was before. And that is a good explanation for why. Um, another thing that can change kind of the drug clearance that you would expect is the proportion of the replacement fluid that's administered pre or post filter. So um, using the vancomycin example, if we give the majority of our replacement fluid pre-filter, we're going to dilute out the drug and actually take out, take off less drug than we would if we gave the majority of that replacement fluid post-filter. And then of course, as we know, um, our convective therapies are more efficient at taking off some of these larger molecular weight drugs um, like vancomycin or daptomycin than like CVVHD. All right, so let's go through a patient case. Um, JT is an 84-year-old man who developed AKI after abdominal surgery, and he was started on CVVHDF with a blood flow rate of 200 mLs per minute, a dialysate flow rate of 2 liters per hour, and an ultrafiltrate production rate of 500 mLs per hour. Um, so kind of average settings, so you would expect probably a crowning clearance around 40 with those settings. Um, current weight is 105 kilos, his dry weight is 85 kilos, so he's clearly volume overloaded, which can contribute to the PKPD changes throughout his stay. He produced just 200 mLs of urine in the last 24 hours, so right now he's not, uh, he doesn't have a lot of residual renal function, although that could change. And he was initiated on gentamicin, daptomycin, and drug X. So what dose of drug X should this patient receive? And this is a very common scenario. 
So let's say that drug X recently came to the market and there's no data in CRT available on how to dose this medication. Um, and so there, what kind of questions do we want to ask? What kind of information do we need in order to come up with a um, dosing regimen for this patient? We want to know about the molecular weight. Um, so smaller molecular weight drugs are going to be taken off more efficiently. We want to know about the volume of distribution. Remember, the small volume of distribution, the more likely the drug is going to be taken off by CRT. Protein binding, low protein binding, more efficiently taken off. And then, is there an FDA-approved dosing in the package insert? We know that there isn't for CRT, of course, but um, sometimes referring to the CKD dosing is helpful when coming up with a CRT regimen. And of course, we want to consider what is the antibacterial activity based on. Is it dependent on the peak of the drug, or is it time over the MIC? Um, these are things we're going to want to consider when coming up with a regimen. And dosing weight, of course, um, are we using actual adjusted or ideal body weight based on the distribution of the drug? And of course, always asking the question, is it possible to monitor levels um, to help guide our therapy? And monitoring for any side effects or toxicity. One of the challenges that we run into is that the frequent side of, or frequent toxicity related to a lot of drugs is nephrotoxicity, which is always gonna be challenging to monitor for when a patient's on CRT, of course. All right, so we talked about uh, kidney support. Um, MARS, as you know, is a form of liver support that was approved by the FDA for um, patients with drug overdoses, um, as well as hepatic encephalopathy and intractable pruritus related to end-stage liver disease. Um, so the important thing to remember as it pertains to pharmacokinetics is that the MARS circuit is sort of like CRT combined with um, you know, running the blood through a 20% albumin solution, as well as um, running it through an anion exchanger and um, activated charcoal. So what does that mean as far as drugs? It means that we are removing not only what we would expect with normal, with CRT, but in addition to that, we're also removing highly protein-bound drugs that are bound to albumin. And um, Essentially, we, we don't really know how to dose medications in this because we don't know how much is going to be contributed um, by the kind of the Mars portion of this circuit. So what we're left with is there's really no guidance um, as far as dosing of medications in Mars. Um, we really just have case reports to guide us. Uh, there were two case reports of Piperacillin tazobactam clearance in Mars. And this is a low, uh, very low, relatively low volume of distribution, pretty um, hydrophilic drug um, that is pretty efficiently cleared, low protein binding, pretty efficiently cleared by CRT. Um, but now how much does the Mars circuit contribute to the clearance of Piperacillin and Tazobactam? So in these two case reports, uh, both were giving uh, extended infusions, 4.5 grams or 3.375 grams. Um, and the goal, of course, was to achieve a target above the MIC for a prolonged period of time. Um, of course, we're targeting Pseudomonas most likely with the Piperacillin tazobactam. So we want, let's say, MIC of four. We're going to want at least four times above that for as long a duration as we can. Um, so our target's going to be something like 16 micrograms per ml. 
Well, in both case reports, we, they were able to achieve above that um, level. However, the question I would ask is, of course, if you're not giving extended infusions, you're giving a 30-minute infusion of, of Zosin, um, are you going to be able to achieve therapeutic levels with that dosing regimen? And Jason is shaking his head no, so I think not. Um, and then there is a case report of tacrolimus um, in a patient who had intractable pyritis who was um, on Mars therapy. And um, so with this drug, it's highly protein bound. So you would think that the Mars portion would take off a pretty significant amount of tacrolimus. Um, and interestingly, there was minimal effect on clearance. And so the authors postulated that perhaps this is because um, Tacrolimus is very highly bound to red blood cells. Um, and so even though there's a significant amount in the plasma bound to protein, um, actually the, it's partially bound to albumin and partially bound to AAG. And so really the Mars is only gonna be taking off um, the albumin bound drug. So kind of explains why there maybe was minimal clearance of tacrolimus in this patient. But as you can see, I mean, three case reports is not a lot. So we really don't have guidance on what to do with medications in Mars. So um, definitely more needs to be done to have a better understanding. And then ECMO, um, we've, you know, there have been at least 20,000 patients since the 1990s who've had adult patients who've had ECMO, yet um, we actually don't have as much information on drug pharmacokinetics as you would expect um, with those numbers. Uh, the studies just haven't been done. We expect that drugs will be taken off by the circuit. Um, the tubing itself uh, is a site for drug sequestration. It's made out of polyvinyl chloride, PVC, and the drug directly adheres to that. Also, the membrane oxygenator, which is responsible for um, providing oxygen to the circuit as well as taking off CO2, is another site for drug sequestration. We think that the priming fluid um, in ECMO also has an impact on drug pharmacokinetics. So the fluid type, crystalloid versus colloid, pH of the fluid, electrolytes, and temperature. Um, but that really isn't well described. And we also think that circuit age, we know that circuit age affects drug pharmacokinetics in ECMO. Um, we, when you initially start a patient on a, on a drug um, that's lipophilic and protein bound, it will bind to the circuit irreversibly. Um, but then uh, you're going to get saturation of the circuit, of course. So over time, you're going to get less um, drug loss. Um, however, let's say you change the membrane oxygenator. Um, you're going to expect that you're going to have increased requirements of that drug for a period of time while you get resaturation. Um, so we talked about the circuit factors that go into uh, ECMO effects on PKPD, but um, I touched on briefly the drug factors. So it's really lipophilic, um, highly protein-bound drugs that you expect to bind to the circuit. Um, we think also molecular size and ionization also factor in, but there's less information on that. And of course, patient factors. A lot of these factors are purely really related to the critical illness um, itself. Um, but depending on, for example, remember the protein um, changes that we observe in critical illness, you're going to potentially have more, um, more or less protein binding of certain drugs and more or less binding to the circuit based on the drug. Um, I think adipose tissue is important too because when we think about, there's some of the studies, a lot of the studies that have been done um, on PKPD in patients who are on ECMO are neonatal patients. 
And so they, of course, have greater total body water than adult patients who have more adipose. So you really can't extrapolate results from neonatal patients into adult patients who have very different physiology, different makeup. Um, I'm going to end our talk about ECMO um, by doing a comparison of two drugs that we commonly will use for sedation, for analgesia in, IC, in the ICU and, of course, in patients who are on ECMO. Um, so fentanyl versus morphine. Fentanyl is much more, uh, or has irreversible binding to the circuit um, versus morphine is unlikely to bind to the circuit, actually. Um, and because of that, we expect 87% uh, losses of fentanyl after 24 hours um, in a patient who's on ECMO versus 17.5% losses in morphine. And um, as expected, you would expect decreased levels of fentanyl in the serum um, and potentially increased morphine levels. And that's related to some of the other organ dysfunction and physiologic changes that you would expect in a patient who's on ECMO. So what does that mean? Clearly, uh, fentanyl and morphine act differently in a patient who's on ECMO, um, but clinically, that's translated to differences too. Um, we've seen lower rates of withdrawal, less supplemental analgesia required, and actually discharge 9.5 days on average earlier in patients who want morphine compared to fentanyl. Um, so clearly, based on at least these studies that have been done, morphine is probably going to be our preferred um, analgesic agent for patients who are on ECMO. Um, plasmapheresis is similar to ECMO in the sense that there, it's been around for decades, but we have really limited information to guide us on dosing of medications and pharmacokinetic changes we would expect. Um, it removes 40 to 60 mLs of plasma per kilo over two to three hours. And the drugs that we expect to be removed are drugs that have very low volume of distribution and are highly protein bound. So you would think that you should be able to predict what drug clearance is going to look like um, in patients who are getting plasmapheresis. Uh, this review from 2007 found 70 publications on drug clearance and plasmapheresis, although most of those case, most of those publications were actually just case reports, and only 23% of them involved formal formal pharmacokinetic studies. Um, I looked to see what's been done in the last 10 years since this publication, and actually there's been very little um, added to the literature since that, um, since that publication uh, went out. And so clearly a lot more information is needed in order to help guide us with dosing of drugs here. Um, I'm going to use corticosteroids as an example um, because clearly we would use corticosteroids in certain patients who are going to get plasmapheresis. Um, prednisone is a prodrug for prednisolone, which is the active drug. Prednisolone is very highly protein bound and has a moderate volume of distribution. Based on the protein binding, you would expect that there would be um, pretty high clearance of prednisone or prednisolone in plasmapheresis. But according to one study, at least, um, it removed only 1% of the total daily dose, and there was no need for redosing patients after plasmapheresis. Um, and the authors thought that perhaps this is because, um, or perhaps prolonged um, pheresis sessions, or perhaps if they had done the plasmapheresis immediately after giving the prednisone dose, they would have had greater removal. But um, clearly, uh, it's very difficult to predict sometimes what the clearance is actually gonna be. All right, uh, so targeted temperature management, therapeutic hypothermia. Um, we know a lot about the physiologic changes that happen 
um, as a result of cold exposure in animal models. Um, we also have a lot of thoughts about what drugs should do in TTM um, based on some of the understanding of the physiologic changes we would expect, but not a lot of true guidance on what to do with dosing or what to expect. Um, so for absorption, in animal models at least, we've seen decreased GI motility, um, which could potentially increase the Tmax for drugs that are absorbed in the small intestine. So not necessarily decreased bioavailability, but um, longer time to absorption. For distribution, this is a very complex interplay between the vasodilation of skeletal muscle vasculature, decreased intravascular volume, decreased cardiac output, um, and then decreased lipid solubility that you expect in cold temperatures, all of which will potentially decrease the volume of distribution and dis decrease the distribution of drug into tissue in patients who are um, un undergoing TTM. Um, and with metabolism, again, it goes back to the animal models, we've seen decreased hepatic blood flow and decreased enzymatic activity um, that we expect would potentially decrease hepatic metabolism of certain drugs in patients who are on this. And um, we expect, uh, we, we've seen decreased blood flow um, physiologically, and so from that we would expect to see decreased renal clearance of certain drugs as well. Um, one of the challenges that we see with TTM is that um, that we actually see a decreased production of creatinine um, as well as potentially cold diuresis. So we are potentially um, overestimating GFR and so estimating a creatinine clearance in these patients may, um, may end you up actually uh, giving too high of a dose to your patients. All right, um, as an example, I wanna highlight neuromuscular blockers because we frequently use them for shivering in TTM. Um, so it's important to understand how the pharmacokinetics work. We've seen decreased vecuronium hepatic metabolism leading to increased vecuronium levels in patients who are on um, TTM, decreased clearance of rocuronium, and increased duration of action of atricurium have also been described. Um, also on a pharmacodynamic level, um, we know that um, certain drugs that may have interactions with neuromuscular blockers at the receptor level, um, may uh, be, clearance may be decreased, and so we may actually end up with a greater pharmacodynamic effect because of that interaction um, at the receptor level. Um, so whenever we have a situation where we don't know what to do with dosing because we don't have a lot of information, we like to monitor. So ideally, we would be able to monitor the train of four very closely in patients who are on TTM and are paralyzed. However, um, there are studies that indicate poor correlation between uh, neuromuscular blockade and train of form measurements in patients who are undergoing therapeutic hypothermia. So it kind of presents a challenging dilemma. Um, so, in short, uh, I think uh, hopefully I've given you a greater appreciation for the fact that there's a lot of obviously physiologic changes that are happening in critical illness that potentially can um, increase clearance of drugs, actually decrease clearance of drugs, and therefore increase levels or decrease levels based on these complex mechanisms that are happening. Um, and a, a lot of overlap between pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics. Um, and really patient-specific considerations that need to happen. So um, we have to be aware of the physiologic changes that may change the uh, PKPD of our drugs that we're using, and as much as possible, closely monitor for those ph pharmacodynamic effects and adjust doses as necessary. Um, 
again, that role for therapeutic drug level monitoring, um, ideally if possible, um, if drug levels are available in-house and we have a reference range available that we can actually use. Um, and then there's also the question of big data for therapeutic drug level monitoring. There are actually companies out there that are trying to develop um, programs to help hospitals get real-time feedback on um, TDM to try to make changes in their patients. And I think that's potentially the future of PKPD um, in critical illness. Um, and the more that people, the more that hospitals participate in those types of programs, of course, the more robust that data is going to become and the more helpful it's going to be for us in guiding our, our patients' therapy. Um, but the take-home message is really that there's not a lot of literature out there. Um, and so a lot more work needs to be done and there are a lot of un unanswered questions that still need to be answered. So we will answer those questions. With that, I'll take any questions that you have. It really depends on the, oh, I'll repeat the question. So um, the question is with augmented renal clearance, um, is that something that you definitely want to get at, at baseline when the patient's first admitted? Um, or is that something that happens potentially along the way throughout their admission? Um, it depends on when you're concerned about the risk. Um, so a patient who's admitted um, who, if you actually do the scoring tool and you see that their score is like eight or nine, um, and you're worried about potentially augmented clearance or, um, you know, that may be a good patient to get a baseline creatinine clearance on to kind of see if your suspicion is correct. Um, another thing is, you know, you have a patient who's on vancomycin who's clearing vanco a lot faster than you would expect. Not unreasonable to actually do that creatinine clearance at that time to kind of see what is their real creatinine clearance doing right now and adjust other medications based on that too. Any thoughts about Remifentanil in terms of uh, clearance in metabolism of the plasma where it gets hydrolyzed, no need for liver or renal, uh, and avoid oversedation in ICU patients? Uh, let me make sure I understand your question. So, um, Remifentanil, PKPD, and critical illness, yeah. um, just in general? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, I don't use a lot of Remifentanil in the medical ICU, so I don't often think about that. Um, but certainly, uh, I mean, that's a very titratable drug, so that's the nice thing is that you can, you can see the effect of what you're doing very quickly and make changes if you need to. I mean, I think that's ultimately the take home um, is just monitoring patients for the pharmacodynamic effects that you want, that you expect to see or the toxicity that you don't want to see um, and tweaking your regimens based on that. But I think what I tried to hammer home is that there's so many different changes based on what your patient population is that it's certainly not a one-size-fits-all model um, so I couldn't give you a one-liner to answer your question <laughs> all right thank you guys <laughs>